Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day for an interview and it's going to be an intriguing interview. I've got Lynn Delmastra Thompson with me. Now, Lynn is an amazing woman who wrote a book about her own journey and it is a journey to a certain degree about medical misdiagnosis. Now, here I am as a doctor <laughs> bringing in a patient with medical misdiagnosis. Talk about kicking the hornet's nest. Okay, come on, let's be quite clear about that. <laughs> Having said that, first of all, human uh, humans are amazing beings. And, and as doctors, we do our utmost and our best to get it right. But we can't always. So that's, that's a preamble there. And what we want to do today, uh, Lynn and I... Uh, want to look at her journey and we want to draw conclusions from it and want to learn lessons from it because there's so many lessons to learn so guys hang in there this is no doctor beating this is no no nothing one side or the other side we both are strongly believing that polarization is bullshit let's bring bring everything together onto the table and and actually see that we can come up with a beautiful combination of different healing methods and, and medicine practices that can allow each and every individual patient to get through whatever life throws at them and then come out the other side in the in a new and improved version. So that's what I like to do. That's what I, I hope I can achieve in my daily life as an anesthetist. And more importantly, so today as a host of Lynn Delmastra Thompson. Welcome to my show. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely right. So here you were when you were a little girl going to your mummy and said, look, one day I will write a book. And I'm going to make sure that we all come around the table and we're going to be all fine. Set no girl ever. Um, no, so, no. <laughs> who did you want to be when you grow up? Who, who, were, who was the young Lynn? Um, I think it changed a lot over time. Yeah. When I was pretty young, I actually was really into ballet. And so there was a part of me that wanted to be a ballerina. Right. And then I soon realized as, as I started getting older and going through puberty, I was like, I don't really have a ballerina body. Like, <laughs> In the film, one of the actresses said, yeah, and then, then the girls came along. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was never like, you know, I could never do full splits or anything like that. So it was like, I think it wasn't meant to be. And, and looking at that, it's like, it's fine. Because, you know, your career is over by what age when you're a ballerina? <laughs> oh, that's true. And then your joint replacements start happening one after the other. You're exactly. Quite right. You're quite right. So there went the ballerina dream. So yes. when you were a teenager, what did that then morph into? Um, Who did you want I, to go? I think I wasn't really sure in my teenage years. I was mm -hmm. very into history. Oh. And ultimately, that was what I pursued when I was in college. Cool. But you know, when I was a teenager, I was kind of in that, I don't really know. Like, oh. I, I was very studious and, you know, knew I wanted to go to college. But as far as where the end goal was, I didn't really know what that was. And then what happened? And then I went to college and uh, I, I got a degree in history and I went cool. from that degree to let's get another degree in history. Excellent. So. <laughs> so did you become a female Indiana Jones and took the history into practical archaeology and things like that? Or did you take the history into teaching or into research? Where did you end up? Um, I wanted to go into teaching. I, I was pursuing a PhD in history and wanted to become a professor. Nice. And then kind of life had some other plans for me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly why you're on the on the show today. Although I could talk for hours on history. I'm a history yes. nerd myself. So maybe there's another interview waiting. But today, <laughs> today, let's talk about life and the, the interesting detour that it sent you on um yes tell me more what happened because it was around about the age of 25 when yes. suddenly you were studious in the library mode and getting all engrossed and sucked up in this beautiful learning and then what happened 
So it was, I was three years into my graduate school program and it was in the summer and I actually was scheduled for elective surgery. So talking about the girls, they, they were <laughs> something I wanted to have reduced at that time right. in my life. Okay. And, um, so I had all of the pre-op process, you know, that I went through. I went to see the surgeon, all the consultations. And then, you know, you get to that end stage where it's like, okay, we're going to send you for your pre-op blood work and then we'll see you tomorrow, mm. um, which I'm sure you're well aware of as dealing with surgeries and, you know, anesthesia. So I get the phone call the night before the surgery and, you know, not expecting a phone call from my surgeon because I had seen him that day in the office. And he said, well, your pre-op blood work came back and there's something that looks abnormal in it. And then he was quickly went into reassuring mode. He said, now don't panic quite yet because sometimes lab errors happen and, you know, things, things happen. So just take a deep breath. I'm going to have you just run back over to the hospital right now. They're going to draw another, you know, couple tubes of your blood and we'll do this again. So I do that still with a little bit of panic in my mind and get home, you know, and they probably ran at stat. So probably within the hour, I get another phone call and he said, yeah, I'm really sorry, Lynn. It's not a lab error. I can't do surgery on you. Mm. And I was left with the, like, not really knowing what was wrong, just that surgery was not safe at that moment, which opens the Pandora's box in your mind of like, well, what could be so wrong that they can't do surgery? May I ask at that time, you felt normal in yourself? You I were... totally felt normal, okay. yeah. It, I was, was like, other than nervous that I was going to have, you know, surgery, yeah. I yeah. was healthy. Yeah. I was, you know, excited mm. that I was finally going to get the surgery that I wanted since I was probably 16. Mm. Yeah, right. And, you know, then all of a sudden it's like, what just mm. happened? Yeah. You know, curveball. That's right, obviously. And if you look back at that, time on that evening and the days before you were not bruising easily you were not tired uh, did you sweat a lot at night nothing not that i remember no, there was like nothing, nothing that stood out it was Perfect. just you know it was like i felt healthy you know and and ready to to do this process mm. okay and you know, he left me with just go see your primary doctor as soon as you can, because, mm. you know, he really couldn't tell me more. That wasn't his scope of practice. He's a plastic surgeon. He's, you know, mm. he knows the parameters of when it's safe to do surgery. And mm. then, you know, the rest is like not my ballpark. <laughs> go goes to see somebody else who can help mm. you. So I think the next day I did get an appointment with my primary doctor and didn't get a whole lot of information at that point either, just more lab tests. Mm. And, you know, we, that's, of course, the, the process in the medical system is we got to run tests. We don't mm. really know what's going on with you. We're just going to send you for tests. Mm. And the next thing I know, it was probably a day or two later, I get a phone call from a doctor who I've never met which is the strangest experience that I think anybody listening could probably imagine. Like a doctor you don't know calling you is not a common thing. So as soon as I get this phone call from a doctor I've never heard, I'm starting to panic. And he said, you know, are you having any symptoms? And he didn't even specify what kind of symptoms, you know, like, how are you feeling today? And I said, well, other than, you know, anxious and panicked that I don't know what's going on, I'm okay. And he said, okay, well, if you don't have any symptoms tonight, you can stay at home and sleep in your own bed and come meet me in the hospital. But if you have any symptoms tonight, please come to the hospital immediately. Hmm. And I was so shell-shocked, like looking back at this story, like the me of now goes, why didn't you ask more questions hmm. of like, well, what should I even be looking for? But the me of that moment who was just like, why is this strange doctor calling me? was like, oh, okay. And I spent the whole night not knowing what I should be worried about, what symptoms I should be looking for. I just, you know, was like, is that a symptom? Is that a symptom? And he, because he told me nothing more. He just said, come see me tomorrow in the hospital unless you see something or you feel something in your body that doesn't feel right. So I make it through the night. I don't think I really slept very much that night <laughs> and go check into the hospital the next day. And I meet him and he said, well, we're thinking that maybe you clotted off the portal veins that drain the liver. And I was like, okay, well, that's not something that's supposed to happen. 
And he said, but we don't really know why. So we're going to do more tests, right? We've got to figure this out. And he sends in a hematologist to try and figure out like why I would have clotted off these veins. Okay. So first of all, for those of you who are thinking, what the hell are they talking about? Um, the moment that a plastic surgeon says, no, I don't want to earn money in the last second, that tells you a lot. Okay. So, right. right. The <laughs> surgeons are there to cut and make money. That's what we right. do in private practice. End of the story. Right. Um, so the sheer fact that he was spooked meant that there was something not right and something right. that potentially is uh, relating to your health. Now, I then need to make a compliment to my medical colleagues over there because the timeframes that you mentioned are out of this world. They are very fast, very crisp, very, there is no fat to cut off anywhere. This is as fast as possibly you can do it. And that is really hard to do in a modern uh, healthcare system where sure. just where, where we are all so bloody busy. I mean, we are all running on fumes. That's the reality in, of modern life mm -hmm. in medicine. So I, I want to say, wow, but with that wow comes also a degree of them playing uh, it relatively loose because you don't want to tell all the facts on the telephone. By the way, you have got, and then you come up with a diagnosis that basically potentially pulls the, the rug from underneath your, your feet. And it's, it's scary. So therefore, there is a process how to do that. And it's basically by sitting the patient down and basically explaining things, giving the right time, right. not just over the phone. By the way, you're fucked. Um, right. <laughs> have a good day. See me tomorrow in the clinic. No, we don't do that. Okay. So right. that is that is maybe what was going on in the heads of my colleagues there right. and what are there. Now, the vena cava is the biggest vein that is just sort of be before the heart and it drains all the blood from the lower part of the body. And there's a superior vena cava that drains all the blood from the upper part of the body to the heart. Cool. Mm -hmm. Big, beautiful vessels. Uh, maybe not giving you the finger, but about that size, <laughs> that size. So, no, that doesn't clot off. Okay. There is no blood clot just sitting there. If that happens, right. that's a life and death scenario. So, right. the sheer fact that you had that meant you were actually quite sick. So right. just giving you guys out there, you have got a patient who from the outside looks absolutely normal on the inside is a bloody time bomb um, where uh, potentially, which could go boom at any second. Mm -hmm. Take yep. it from there, girl. <laughs> so I, the hematologist came in to start the kind of diagnostic, diagnostic process of what's the underlying cause of this clot. And he first thing that he decided to do was the bone marrow biopsy. And that was a very traumatic experience for me because he told me that he was going to give me a local and he said, all you'll feel is some pressure. And what I felt was not just some pressure. What I felt was pain, like a pain that I never thought I could experience in my body. Mm. And he had to stop because I couldn't tolerate what was happening. It was so painful. I couldn't hold still. And that was, it was hard because I thought, how, how are you just mm. describing this as some pressure? You know, did you experience mm. this procedure and mm. only feel pressure? It doesn't seem likely to me that a lot of people mm. would experience it that way. I had one of them done as part of a study and it can feel like pressure. And in all fairness, I was quite sweaty afterwards because whilst that is yes there is most of the time there's a pressure i had a healthy bone marrow when they aspirated out it is like a toothache like a nasty toothache in your lower back um and i got distracted and it was okay but i can see that some people who have got uh who have got more more pain sensors in there might actually say thank you very much that's a little bit more than pressure so yeah. again with every every procedure there are, it goes from there to there. Some people say, what the hell are you on about? That's nothing. And other right. people jump off the bed. So and the whole range is the there. Jump off the bed, basically, yeah. you know. But you've also had the uncertainty so far. You have no idea what's going on. And you turn right. into this, this human guinea pig. Uh, mm -hmm. At least that feels like it. Or pincushion. So, Christ. Yes. So, yes. Were, they, were they able to get enough of the bone marrow to make a diagnosis? 
Not at that time. Mm. So basically at this point, I'm in a smaller town in California and they said, you know, when they knew that I had clotted off the portal veins, they said, we, we know the procedure to open this, but we've never done it here in this hospital. And so they made the decision, we need to transfer you to a bigger city mm. and, you know, a major medical center that's done this before and I said well great I'm glad that you don't want me to be the first one that you do this you know that that was a good call thank you so it was then the insurance game of they they wanted to send me to a hospital in LA and that hospital said I we won't take her unless your her insurance will guarantee if she needs a liver transplant they'll pay for it exactly and then we found a different hospital in San Francisco that would take me and didn't require that guarantee of a, a liver transplant. So I got moved to a different hospital and then they continued the process. So they they opened up the veins, yeah. they went in and, yeah. and did basically what they do in your heart, yeah. with the you know, a balloon opening up the yeah. veins. Yeah. Yeah. And then they continued to figure out, okay, we have to do a bone marrow biopsy on her because we, we never got a sample and they sedated me a lot more and, you know, gave me a lot of pain medications Mm. and made it so that at least I could get through it instead Mm. of just, Mm. it was intolerable. And that was probably between all of the tests and, you know, the procedure to open things up. We're at about 10 days in that hospital because it also was over like a holiday period here in the summer. It was over the 4th of July in the U.S. So everything was slowed, you know, because there were less staff and, and, you know, I was in that lucky time window. (laughs) But it is 10, 10 days of sitting on hot charcoal and not knowing what's going on. The uncertainty exactly the, the chaos that goes through your head is is that's torture that's the it, that's how you talk it was somebody. yeah it was you know you just want an answer at that point in 10 days you know and some days i was just laying there in the hospital mm. and then they weren't able to do any yeah. any tests mm. or procedures yeah. which is waiting so finally, we get to the end of that 10 days and the head of the person who was mm. the head of my team came in and I knew that was going to be the day, you know, that they kind of gave me the news. And so here we are in that moment in the hospital room, both my parents are there. And that was when he said that they believed it was chronic myelogenous leukemia that had caused the clotting issue. And it was a very, very, you know, that moment will always be in my mind as kind of all of the memories, all of the emotions, the fear that I felt. And when I heard the word leukemia and the instant question, you know, chemotherapy, is that what's going to happen? What does this mean lifespan wise? And the answer to the the chemo question was no, they were going to put me on a particular medication that had come out in the past year or two at that time that didn't mean I needed chemo. And, you know, he didn't really give me a whole lot in terms of like, you know, a time clock of how long I had. And in all fairness, uh, that is leukemias and lymphomas. These are cancers of the blood and the lymph cells. And they are, they are so different. Okay. Leukemia is not leukemia. That's it's the same as if you would say all the Europeans, they are the same. Okay. The, the Italians are just the same as the Norwegians. They are all the same. Uh, that's bullshit. Okay. So right. therefore some leukemias, they only happen in um, predominantly younger children can be very aggressive and need to have the works from, I mean, uh, hardcore chemo, but they have got a high chance of getting killed the, the, not the children the, 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 the humor cells yeah, the cancer. and that's right so that kind of leukemia can be that's leukemia there are other leukemias which you basically just sit on and these are coming in elder stages of life they are not doing very much they are just sitting there you can detect them in the blood but ultimately there's sort of supportive therapy um, that is being done and they they might not mean very much and you might die of your heart attack long before you die of the leukemia so this is equally these are these are these are all forms of of things so you're talking apples and oranges and some kiwi fruit thrown in there so right. but you you at that stage didn't know that you only no. heard you only heard leukemia shit right. i'm dead so right or i need you know i thought i would need a bone marrow transplant or all the things that you associate in your mind with exactly. you know what that means exactly 
flooded in and, you know, all the questions. <laughs> Bollocks. Okay. Uh, how did that continue? So you were still there in the hospital. <laughs> Let me guess, mm-hmm. Friday afternoon, four o'clock. And by the way, we discharge <laughs> you now in one hour. Go, bye-bye. <laughs> I think they said they were going to discharge me the next day. Yeah. Like it, was, it, it was like, okay, well, we'll let you go tomorrow, you know? Yeah. And I was like, okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sleeping in my own pajamas tonight because I'm tired of the hospital gown. <laughs> But they flap so nicely in the wind. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was oh. just kind of like I needed the normalcy at that yeah. point, you know, of like feeling like I chose what I got to wear. And, you know, nobody protested that. It was like, I'm going to sleep in my own clothing tonight. <laughs> and that's that's a, essentially already the start of your new journey, isn't it? Because it so was, they said, yeah. they said, no, here's the tablet. Okay, we're going to go home and you will now be under the care of your um, a family physician, a primary care physician. Um, what? And it, yeah, the, and the hematologist who had and, tried to do the bone marrow biopsy back yeah. in, in the town where I lived. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yep. So they, they released me the next day and, you know, it was kind of one of those, what do you do? Your life has had kind of the nuclear bomb dropped in it. And then you're like, I'm just supposed to go home. And Hmm. now what? So there were, there were weeks and probably even months of sorting through, you know, like, what does all of this really mean? Like, Hmm. what do I, I started kind of questioning, you know, what I wanted to do with my life at that point, a little bit more than I was before. Cause you know, Hmm. you kind of feel like, Oh, now I have to make things count. You know, I I have a little bit of a motivation in life. (laughs) So I start the medication. They're also have me on a blood thinner to make sure I'm not clotting and, you know, doctor's appointments and trying to resume life. And a couple months into it, I'm, I'm seeing the hematologist and he's starting to run tests to see if this medication is working. And he's, he keeps saying it looks good news. It looks like it is. And as the months go by, I actually start to lose an incredible amount of weight. So I went from being probably could lose a few pounds, like being just slightly heavier than I should be, to being almost a human skeleton over the course of six to eight months. And when I would go to the hematologist and he would look at this lab test, he was always focused on that. And he would ask me the question of how I was feeling. And by this point, I started to feel sick and feel worse than I ever had. And I would say to him, I don't feel well. And his answer to that question or that statement was, you look great, which always perplexed me because I knew I didn't look well at that time. I, I knew I looked ill and people in my life, friends and family were saying, you know, nicely, like, don't lose any more weight. You're not looking so great. So why was I being dismissed in that moment? And that was when I started to first kind of be like, something isn't adding up here. You're telling me the lab tests are showing one thing, yet physically I can see in my body I am actually declining and my health is getting worse. But I was not getting an answer. And I went to my primary doctor and I kept saying, please, can I be referred to a different hematologist? And he kept saying, well, I went to medical school with this guy and he's the best in town. And I was caught at that point because I I knew in my gut that there was something that wasn't adding up and that this doctor wasn't listening to me. And yet, you know, in in the medical system, we all know you need referrals for specialists. So I couldn't just self-refer and say, I want a different hematologist. And that went on for a number of years where I I still felt like, you know, I wasn't getting better. Um, I think I stabilized a bit with my weight at one point, but, you know, I wasn't healthy and I wasn't getting an answer of if everything looks so great, then why do I still feel terrible? Hmm. And I even went back to the hospital that had made the diagnosis in San Francisco as an outpatient. And I tried to get a reevaluation. And that was an interesting story because I got there. And after 10 days in the hospital, you'd think they'd have a lot of records on me. Hmm. And I get to the outpatient clinic and she opens up a file folder and there's not a sheet of paper inside of it. And there's nothing, you know, she didn't look at anything in the computer. And it was like, basically, why are you here? Um, well, don't you know my history? 
And we spent the whole hour just explaining my history and never getting a reevaluation because she didn't have my history. So that was where the wheels started falling off the bus. You know, in the beginning, it seemed like the care was great. And then it's like, why are all these things happening that are not really adding up to good care? Fair call. Fair call. Um, you look like a dick when your logistics be behind you fall down. Um, and for us doctors, we are running from one date to the other, from one appointment to the other, from one theatre list to the other. And there is a tremendous amount of background work happening. Right. If the logistics behind you are breaking down and you are on a, on a call front sitting there and opening this folder up and there's nothing in there or the wrong information is in there. You look like an idiot. You feel like an idiot. I'm sure she, I'm sure she did. <laughs> oh, it's awful, awful, awful. Um, you know, it happens once, maybe two, three months, maybe something like that. And that's why we try as doctors, we try to put systems into place. We try to, to have teamworks. We try to do a sort of the Swiss cheese model that, that there are different safety nets that catch you at, at various levels. Even if you fall through two, right. three nets, there must be another one there. But sometimes, like in your case, the perfect storm brews up and you just cruise through these holes. And that's what appears to me from at this happened. moment in time has happened. What happened then? I mean, you're talking about 10 months down the line? It must be, or even more now? It would, I mean, the whole experience of the misdiagnosis was three years long. Yeah. I, I, you know, didn't get an answer until basically what changed was I left my graduate school program because yeah. I realized I was not really in the right field. Um, I got different health insurance because at that time I had student health insurance. And in the right. U.S. at that time I was caught, I couldn't get like COBRA. I couldn't get any other health insurance unless I got a job. Uh, so I had to get myself to the point that I could go out and get a job so I could get health insurance and get a different doctor. And uh, that finally happened, you know, after a, a number of years, I was finally in that place. So I get new health insurance. I get a new primary doctor. My first appointment with her, I say, can you please refer me to a different hematologist? And she says, sure. Pulls out her pad of paper, writes, you know, a referral to another doctor and says, there you go. And I go to see this new doctor, you know, as soon as I could get an appointment, yeah. bring in a stack of records that was probably about three inches thick because I yeah. wasn't leaving anything to chance at this point. Uh, like every piece of paper uh, I had, uh, 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 good on you. <laughs> I was like, good on you. here you go, yeah. you know, and he starts flipping through it in right in front of my mother and I. And he says, I don't really think this is chronic myelogenous leukemia in that appointment just flipping through the papers. And of course he said, I can't say that for sure in this yeah, moment, you sure. know, like I'm questioning it, but I'm going to have to run tests yeah. to confirm it. And yeah. I understood that that was, you know, the process, but it was like finally being heard after three years of saying this, this is not adding up. I don't feel well. I'm not getting better despite all these tests that seem to show that I am. Keep going, keep going. So it was, I still remember that moment too, as so much different emotion, you know, like oh, I was sure. angry that I hadn't been listened to for oh, three sure. years. Yeah. I was relieved. I was a little bit scared of like, well, what is the right diagnosis? Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what I'm, I'm waiting a bit for, because here you were at 25, a young woman who is absolutely fine. Then you had a diagnosis. They put you on a tablet. Then within a few months, life deteriorated. So mm -hmm. hang on, why did it deteriorate? Was that a side effect of a medication? Was that because uh, the underlying diagnosis was wrong? There's another disease process that was actually messing about with your life and with your health right. that had not been addressed yet. So where is this story going? That's automatically <laughs> where I'm, where I'm right? sort of sitting You're on the edge of my seat. Mode. Okay, come on, girl, <laughs> spill so the beans. <laughs> I, I get more tests. I get another bone marrow biopsy. Yeah. And finally, a different diagnosis. So the, that hematologist said it was polycythemia vera. Mm. So a different blood disorder. Yep. 
Polisophia Vera is basically that just you are an, um, a high achiever, a super achiever <laughs> yes. in your bone marrow, where you just yes. go on, red cells, who want red cells? Come on, here, red cells, come yeah, on. Yeah. I, that's basically bone marrow on speed. And it's yep. just, yeah, but why are you also slow? We want more red cells, red cells. Yep. That's it. That's it, basically. Yep. But the more red cells you have got, the more sticky the blood gets and the more likely a clot can occur. So yep. there you go. Bloody hell. Yep. And, and, and then he said to me, too, in that news, he said, I don't know why anyone chose the diagnostic diagnos yeah. diagnosis of CML before because the clotting off of the portal veins in all of the studies he had ever seen was never associated with it. And it was almost always associated with the polycythemia vera. So it was like, where did that diagnosis come from? He even was like scratching his head of how the, how it had been arrived at. And that's really, really hard because there you are, you have been mentioning um, that things were not, we're not adding up. And I think the issue is making mistakes is normal. Then not listening to a patient or at least the perception that you're not being listened to. I think that's the hardest thing. That is basically what pisses people off. I certainly yep. have made mistakes in my career and I've looked the patient in the eye and said, look, this is what has happened. And I'm really, really sorry that this is what has happened. Right. Uh, in all these, uh, these, well, luckily not so many incidences, but in every single time, the guys were even guys and girls were saying, look, don't worry, don't worry. It's you're a great guy for sh just showing up and taking right. it on the chin and saying, look, I got it wrong yes. there. Um, for that, we appreciate you. And let's, let's now move forward and let's find a way how we get better kind of a thing. So right. this is, um, I hear you. I hear your frustration. That is really yeah. the, the key message there. Yes. And I think if that had happened, you know, yeah. if they had realized a few yeah. months in, six yeah. months in, like, yeah. hmm, this is not responding the way yeah. and, and reevaluated it, I think I would have, you know, felt very differently mm. than three years later. And it's mm. like, I was the one that was constantly, you know, why don't I feel better? Mm. Absolutely true. So now you've got a, a diagnosis that still, is a diagnosis. There is still a medical problem there. And obviously you have been feeling crook. Was that crookness, was that feeling not well uh, due to the polycythemia vera or was it due to the medication that you were uh, put on as a treatment for the leukemia? I would say it was probably both. So the medication certainly had some nasty side effects. Mm. I definitely had a lot of nausea from it, just right. like you would if you were going through chemo. Yeah. So I would attribute some of the losing weight because it was very hard for me to, you know, eat normally mm. and, you know, keep meals down. So some of it made sense that, you know, it was this medication, which ultimately I didn't even need to be on. Mm. It's one thing to suffer the side effects and, and actually have it be useful to you. Mm. But to have it be something you didn't need. And then I think, you know, not being treated for three years and still having, you know, elevated red cell counts and my platelets and white cells were also elevated as mm. well. Mm. So I was, you know, tired from that because my blood was thick. I had actually clotted off those veins a couple more times. So I had mm. to have that procedure several times mm. in mm. the three years mm. where they opened everything back mm. up. Mm. So I think it was, you know, a combination of both of those things that really contributed mm. to me not feeling well in that time. Once you had the diagnosis of polycythemia vera, they would have stopped the other medication and mm -hmm. would have given you lifestyle advice they might have even uh, asked you to donate blood um, or at least get rid of some blood was that part of your yeah. treatment yes yeah and to this day that's still part of the treatment where i go and, you know it's basically donating blood without them actually using the blood for correct. anything you know correct. Yeah. just throw it away yeah because so they stop the medication and a month goes by and you're now jumping over the grassy fields into the sunset and everything is all right. The weight is coming back on. Everyone is happy. <laughs> no? 
Yeah. It was a bit slower recovery <laughs> than that, for sure. <laughs> I so, think our bodies are amazing, but, you know, the month is maybe a little bit fast. for uh, Because for after things. all, the underlying treatment, uh, the underlying diagnosis is still there. And whilst the side effects might have gone away, there is still your body has had a hammering from disease and medications for three years. Hell, yes. this is you, you don't just get over that in, in, in a no. blink of an eye. So uh, how did things continue? By now you were working. Um, you you What were you doing? What, what job were you holding down? I was working in a bank. I just got a job that had insurance and I cool. wasn't picky at that point because cool. I was like figuring out where I wanted to go. And it was sure. like, as long as you have insurance, I, I will take this job. <laughs> that sounds damn good to me. Um, but there you are basically holding out a, four, a 40, holding down a 40 hour job, um, which makes you tired. And then you have got a diagnosis that makes you tired. And right. then, <laughs> then you're yeah. still and then I actually ended up having my thyroid removed around that time. So I had yeah. the, I had a thyroid nodule. So it was like one more curveball in the medical system. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So when did things change? Um, I, kind of over the course of the next year, things were changing. And, you know, even in that time period of with the misdiagnosis, I had started to find other approaches. So uh -huh. I, I started to explore alternative modalities during that time window because I felt like, well, heck, if nobody's listening to me and nobody's helping me over here, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe there's something else that can help me. Mm -hmm. So the journey started there. And then I think it really picked up speed after getting the right diagnosis of just, you know, keeping exploring and exploring and trying things and those things that I found that worked, I just kept doing them yeah. and, and trying new things. Yeah. So when you say things, are we talking, what are we talking about here? So my journey into alternative lands kind of began with biofeedback and biofeedback was something I had experienced actually as a teenager when I had really bad migraines. Mm -hmm. So I had been sent by a pedi pediatrician at that time for biofeedback to help with that. And I remembered it in kind of in the midst of this three-year window. And I was so anxious all of the time. And I said, I know this anxiety and this stress is not good for me. Like I can tell, you know, to be stressed out every day is, is mm -hmm. just adding like fuel and flames to my fire. So let me try something. So I referred myself basically to someone who taught me how to self-regulate, how to calm down my nervous system. And in that kind of experience too, that was when I started, you know, to think about that as a potential career path. Like I wasn't ready because I wasn't well enough. I was like, who am I to like start working with people at this point? But it was like the, the glimmer started to be there. And then from there, I started going to a yoga class that was called Yoga for Healing. And I was actually referred to that by a psychotherapist I was seeing at the time for my depression. And, nice. and in this time window, too, the year after my diagnosis, I had lost my best friend. She passed away very suddenly. So I was thrown into like even deeper grief. If, if you could imagine a second nuclear bomb going off in your life a year later, that was basically what it felt like. And this, this therapist that I saw said, there's this class that's at a local yoga studio and you really should try it. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her at first, like she was crazy because my only exposure to yoga before that was seeing people do it in a gym. And I was like, you do know I'm sick, right? Like, you know that I can't, because I thought it was going to be a class where I had to do a headstand or, you know, like do all of these vigorous things. And I was like, I, I can barely walk around some days without being exhausted. And she said, no, please just trust me. It's not what you're thinking. Just go to this class, give it a try. And it wasn't what I was thinking at all. Like we spent most of the time lying on the floor with, you know, bolsters and blankets underneath us and just like breathing and relaxing. And I loved it, you know, so I, I started getting really curious in that world. And, you know, again, I'd never tried yoga before. And then somebody came across my path and he said, I do Reiki. Would you like to try a Reiki session? And I was like, yeah, I've never had energy work before, but I became kind of the yes 
person in that time period, you know, because I was like, what do I have to lose? And that was a profound experience, too, of, you know, I, I literally got up off of the table and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw more energy and light in my eyes than I had for that was probably about two years into this experience. And so after that, you know, I was like, Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Yes, I'll try that. You know, anything that came across my path that sounded interesting, I tried. And then after, you know, leaving my graduate school program and starting working in this bank and getting the right diagnosis, that was when it started to really spark for me that I really had a passion to start to help other people. It's like when I feel better enough, I really want to start learning some of these mm. things that I've used in my own life. Mm. And so I went back and I went into a different graduate school program because I was like, I have a degree in history. What quality qualifications do I have to help somebody? <laughs> <laughs> I have a master's in history and I'm going to help you with your health problems. Yeah. I was like, that doesn't seem right. So I said, I'm going to go get a master's in something called somatic psychology, because I really felt that there was this importance of the body mm. that, you know, I didn't really want to just study psychology mm. in a traditional way. So I went into a program and learned that, but I knew I didn't want to be like a traditional psychotherapist. I didn't want to do talk therapy. Mm. This was just kind of like giving me a framework basically mm. to lay these other modalities on. So then I trained in the biofeedback and I started kind of experimenting with working with people with that. And I trained in therapeutic yoga and played in that realm for a bit too. And then I, I studied Reiki and I moved, I moved from California to Oregon and I started a business doing those things. Beautiful. Yep. And then a few years later, it's like I found other things, you know, so I found something called body talk and that became something that I got really passionate about as well, because it helped me with another problem I was having. And it is, it just shows that ultimately there are things out there uh, that are so beautiful and powerful and what these things are, these are not where someone does some magic kind of thing to you and waves a wand and the spirits <laughs> out there come to us. Bullshit. Um, all those, those modalities that you have mentioned have one thing in common. They use the powers that are sitting right now inside your body and are utilizing yes. them for the right purpose. So yes. there is, imagine a whole switchboard of switches and they're all stuck in some way how would it be if you learn techniques where you can say actually dear body can you please start healing yourself can you mm -hmm. please start finding out what's wrong in you in yourself and then do that and let's see which switches we've got we've got healthy breathing so using the diaphragm and actually releasing the diaphragm and uh, training with that, our parasympathetic nervous system, so the vagus nerve, and trying to actually restore some order, get out of this fight and flight mode, getting into that opposite mode, which allows healing and restoration. Would that not be nice? Click. So that would be the, the, the breathing exercises, yes. the mindfulness, the yoga, the, um, the, the, you know, those kind of things. So exactly. you're actually starting with that. Then yes. if you would have gone to a village in 1880 and say one day you guys have got a little box which you can look through and you're going to put your food in there and you press a thing called a button and that button will heat up that food that you've put in there. People would have probably burned you at a stake. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so let's be clear about that. So that was 1880. Fast forward 2021. Do you think there are still things that we can't really explain? That there might be energy frequencies out there that are actually very good for you. And for example, like I'll give you an example, music. Is there certain music out there that makes you feel really good? For sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Music exactly. Is, music is frequencies. 
There are basses in there. There are drums in there that forever have caught our imagination. The drums that is this goes as long as there has been human mankind on Earth. There were drums. So mm -hmm. why is that frequencies? So certain frequencies are good for us, and others not so much. Right. Would it not be cool to learn some techniques where you can maybe strengthen some frequencies or use some frequencies? Hmm. Okay, yes, I'm a doctor. I'm an anesthetist. Yes, we use drugs. Okay, yes, I have not lost my marbles. Okay, so if there are any of my colleagues are, 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 are listening in, I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. There is so much more out there where we can use powers that are residing within and that we just have forgotten about. And that's essentially the path that you have chosen. You have mm -hmm. chosen to actually go out there and, and learn more about those forgotten switches the old dusty switchboard which no one has looked at for a long time especially in our modern hectic life maybe right. forgotten that little room hmm. yep forgotten that yeah we have a lot of power within us of, uh, you know we've gotten so used to well what outside of me can fix me isn't know? it isn't it exactly now, oh i have a headache well maybe i should just grab a tylenol and, and take that and you know oh. problem solved instead of hmm I wonder if maybe I'm just dehydrated today or maybe I didn't sleep enough last night. Maybe that's why I have a headache. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And it's so beautiful to hear that because that should be the wellness medicine, the functional medicine that we're practicing today. That should be the attention to basics. That should be the, the kind of baseline that we should be working from. Instead, we are working from a baseline of essentially social media, crap food, dehydration, uh, complete overwhelm by, by our surroundings. And we have forgotten to look after ourselves. And then we somehow are surprised if um, diseases take advantage of our body, either Either the body acts against itself, autoimmune diseases, or the body can't defend itself against outsides, a chronic infection, or the body can't defend itself against inside cancers, leukemias, lymphomas, all that. How about we just push the pause button? How about we actually talk to someone like Lynn and as she says, hey, you know, you got your shit together after a diagnosis that is chronic and that put you pretty much on the back foot. And now I look in your eyes and you're a bouncy person and you're you're having fun and you wrote a book and it all, you know, hey, you, you, then clearly something has changed. Right. What the hell has changed and how did you do that? And maybe is it time to come along for a ride? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is but <laughs> and I think it's really really important though Lynn that we that we also put it out there that there are certain things where you need a doctor for what I'm saying is not forgive school medicine or western medicine or however you want to call it no 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 there are certain things that can kill you and yeah, we either sure. pick that up that you have got that cancer and cut it out or you are dead you can do as however much healing you want to do um there are certain things that need a doctor end of the story right. so yeah, please you're having a heart attack and exactly you doctor. exactly like, you don't want to die of a heart attack <laughs> your diabetes is has crept up on you and you're actually sick like a dog uh, because you've got an infection because of your weakened immune system due to the diabetes. Well, you need antibiotics for the infection and you need to get a doctor to get your diabetes under control. That's the first right. step. But then why not start healing? Why not look into the nutrition that you're having? Why not look into fasting? And why not look into other healthy lifestyles where you actually start changing your life to such a degree that the disease itself has no more chance. And you can reverse diabetes. You can reverse immune system dysfunctions if you know what the hell you're doing. But it's not happening with a tablet, rest assured. It's happening because we are actually bringing all the modalities together to a table and actually are now saying, okay, cool. What is the first priority? Okay, save your life. Okay, let's just do that, shall we? And then, yeah. <laughs> how can That's we improve? That's kind of your... the most important one. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. So, the rest doesn't matter if you're dead. <laughs>
And that's my point. So as a doctor, we have got a very clear crisis management approach. We go first in, regardless of what it is, I don't care which crisis you throw at me, the very first thing I go in to is to see the patient and do an immediate quick check, is the guy dead or about to die? And is there anything I can do about it? That's a quick primary survey. Then I step back and get actually the more information what is really going on. Then I go back in and say, now focus, okay, this is the problem, let's go down that. So this is a crisis management approach that suits emergency doctors, anesthetists, surgeons very, very well and is mm -hmm. well accepted. Same thing you need to do with wherever you are at, at your life. So right now, what does need to be done right now, okay, and deal with it and then step back and then it's time to rethink. Okay, and that is where the healing starts. The healing in, in the nicest, biggest meaning of the word. Um, what would you do differently nowadays? What did, would you recommend your old, the old Lynn, maybe a year, 18 months into the diagnosis? What would you recommend that Lynn to do nowadays? I think the first thing is I would have taken, there would have been no, no as an answer for a second opinion. I, I you know, in my mid twenties, I didn't really realize how fierce sometimes you have to get and be your own advocate, but I don't think I would have accepted, oh, he's the best in town. I think I would have said, you may think he's the best in town, but I'm entitled to a second opinion. Absolutely. And, you know, you need to refer me to somebody else, you know. Absolutely. If I had to say it meanly, I would say it meanly. <laughs> I think you're right there. And understanding that you might be wrong. But it's still, it's still right now, you have got reason enough to believe that maybe there could be another solution or another diagnosis out there. And it's only fair enough that one actually asks for that. And mm -hmm. um, that's okay. It is, um, it is what it is. Right. But, I think, yeah, it should be in a, in a situation of a serious life-changing diagnosis. You know, it should be kind of standard practice to be like, yeah, the second opinion doesn't sound too far off. I like you know, that. Fresh eyes. I like it that. It doesn't necessarily mean that person is a horrible doctor. It just means like, I really want to be sure, you know, that I'm getting the best care and that something hasn't been missed mm -hmm. in that I think the, he was looking at it so much from, you know, somebody else had made the, the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so he was just following that. And it was like, mm -hmm. it came from this major hospital, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure they're right. They, they know what they're talking about instead of saying, yeah, I, I don't know. This seems like something doesn't quite make sense. There's a missing puzzle piece here and let's be curious about it. You are also now a woman who has explored different healing strategies, different, different, you have exposed yourself to different ways of life that all can be beneficial. What would you recommend anyone out there who says, who is, who has been given the, a chronic diagnosis and this person has been to a second opinion and the diagnosis is still there? You have got a dodgy right. heart. You have got a shit lung because you've smoked 30 years. Your liver is fucked because you have drunken like a fish. And it's nice that you now stop, but after 30 years, damage is done kind of right. a thing. So you've got a chronic diagnosis. How, I mean, and the doctor says, look, there's not much we can do now. It is mm -hmm. what it is. What would you, how would you approach a case like that based I upon your still, information? You know, still being open to possibilities of, of healing. So I have long been a fan of the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza and, you know, his looking into the power of our mind and, you know, the placebo effect. And there are people who go to these week long events that he does and, you know, they're, they're basically terminal and these people, mm -hmm. the cancer heals. So, you know, it's not a guarantee that that mm -hmm. will happen, but if mm -hmm. you're just, be you believe I'm at death's door and mm -hmm. you know, it's the end, 
that's probably what you're going to get. And if you can instead shift Mm. into the power of there is a possibility that my body could heal, Mm. you know, and tapping into our minds because our minds are super powerful, super Mm. amazing. Mm. You know, how can I change out of that? You know, like Mm. I'm at a death sentence to maybe Mm. there is the possibility. What do I need to do to help myself heal from Mm. this? Mm. And it's not an all or nothing. Let's be very clear about that. I'm always dubious when I hear uh, he went to someone and the cancer has gone. I'm incredibly dubious. Having said that, there are actually cases like that out there, full stop. Right. Um, But it's not all or nothing. It is um, making the most of what you have got. Let's look at it from that angle. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you can't undo the damage of time or the damage of trauma, the damage of disease. You can't. Right. But there was a beautiful study when I was still a young young whippersnapper doctor um, <laughs> where they examined the psychological makeup, the, the, the kind of I'm a survivor versus, oh, God, and it's all too much. In, um, the, the catastrophizing, the, the victim, victim versus survivor mode. And they looked at people with cancer and basically broke them all down and had basically same cancer, same stage of cancer, and then looked at survival, the survivors versus the victims. And the survivors were surviving three times as long uh, or three times longer than the people who gave up. And that was actually quite, you know, that was the first time that I realized, ah, okay. And this was, this. they didn't look into healing, etc. They just looked at the, the, the power of I do not give up. Right. And that was actually a really beautiful thing. So that, that will never leave me. So, yes. and, and it, this, this never give up is a beautiful thing. I also have to say that I myself have gone through hypnosis, through Reiki, through other healing modalities, body talk, all those kind of things. I've had sessions and there were sometimes very clearly surprises waiting for me. Exactly. I went to an osteopath and the osteopath sort of realigns you, he cracks you, he does, you know, weird things to your spine. And I enjoyed that. I expected that. This particular dude, um, I suddenly realized, hmm, he's he's just standing there. Uh, I'm face down, nice relaxed there, and not much was happening. And suddenly I found this enormous weight dropping out of my pelvis. My whole pelvis went just, and I thought, Hmm. what was that? And he had done nothing, absolutely nothing. Yet he did, and actually with hindsight, he did some energy healing um, over my, my my lower back. And it was literally as if you had dropped me from 10 centimeters height, boof, down. Wow. And yeah, exactly. And that was osteopath. <laughs> and by that time, I had already other healing sessions. So after that session, I turned around and said, look, just out of interest, um, in your practice, how much actually do you do osteopathy and how much are you doing healing? And he looked at me a bit and he said about 50-50. But the outcome was there. That was as physical as if he would have jumped on my pelvis. So explain that to me. How the hell is that? I know what an osteopath does. I know what the realignments are. How the hell can you realign me just like that? Eh? There is something. There's there's more out there that we can actually... Uh, explain at times and that is just an amazing thing so therefore the the power of our body is immense let's not give that up let's not not uh give let's not not fall into the trap that everything has to come from the outside there's so much that western medicine can help us please i love my job it's gorgeous but at the same token why not combine it with a healthy lifestyle that allows you to harness the powers that are sitting within you why not align it with some yoga in your case uh, and yoga i love it the way you distinguish between the let's make a pretzel by a hang from a <laughs> from the ceiling um into i'm actually just lying down and breathing and learn how to use my diaphragm both right. of this are yoga so and it just shows you how widespread different practices can be and also if you go to a yoga teacher well, you don't know which one, which 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 particular thing you get. So therefore, you might go to someone who says, no, no, I've tried yoga, it's a heap of shit. While someone else says, no, no, I've tried yoga, it was a lifesaver for me. 
maybe that explains to you how these two people can have such different opinions because they maybe were exposed to very different different techniques. Mm -hmm. So, so much out there. Regrettably, is there an easy way to find out what works? Not really. Not really, is it? You kind of have to be uh, your own guinea pig in a way. Because mm, <laughs> I've correct. tried things too in those years that, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't think that was really for me. Mm. And that was okay, you know. Not everything is for everybody. Mm. That's the same with recovery, with, with alcohol programs. Some people love the 12 steps. Some people think, what a bullshit. Um, and it's the same thing. So there are many, many uh, similarities in life. You need to figure out what works for you. But you are in the driver's seat. You are it. You get to make choices. And I think uh, Lynn's story, Lynn, you, you're, you're describing it so well because you gave up the power um, towards a doctor system that in this particular case let you down a bit. And it's lovely how you actually could explain to yourself how things might have actually come together, why people acted the way they did, but also the lessons that you learn and that you give in your book uh, to others. Be, be the driver in your own, own seat. Be the ringmaster in your circus. Don't just yes. be the bearded lady, okay? So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, no, I love your attitude. I love your strength. And that strength is going from... Yeah, from strength to strength. <laughs> no, I, I certainly didn't know how strong I was when that yeah. whole story started, you know. Isn't it? it certainly had taught me a lot about, you know, your own internal strength. Isn't it? Lynn, but I mean, where, you know, who will you be when you grow up? Um, <laughs> what is what is on the, on the cards? What is on the horizon here for yeah. you? Where will you go? I think it's always evolving, you know? Yeah. So it's like I've started now, I've started working with hypnosis and, you know, adding that in because I think there's an element of working with people's minds that's really powerful. Mm. You know, if I have clients who come in and they think, you know, well, I heard that diagnosis and I heard it was chronic, mm. even if they say sometimes, I don't really believe that, there's probably yeah. some part in their mind that took that on board. Uh, and we have to reprogram that, you know, beautiful. so that we can get past it. Beautiful. You're quite right. And again, you're harnessing the power of your body. In this case, you're actually getting rid of a blockage um, that actually we have maybe put into our own life. Um, or maybe someone else as a child mm -hmm. has put something into your mind that you take for granted because it has been so long ago and it was laid down at such an early stage that your belief system is, no, of course, that's black and white. That's so true. Yet it might be a core belief that actually does no longer suit you whatsoever. <laughs> Yet you're still there. And then there is Lynn here who uses a big, big screwdriver to go over that LP and just basically says, nah, nah, sorry. 20 minutes of hypnosis. <laughs> that's, <laughs> let's try it We're again. Get that out of there. That's yeah, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's, let's create a new belief and a new identity. Who do exactly. you want to be, you know, exactly. instead of exactly. what you've been told from someone else or what exactly. you convinced yourself. Exactly. But here's a good example. So now you go to Lynn and you do three, four, five, six sessions of hypnotherapy. That belief system has changed. Great. And now what? So if you're now not actually actively taking steps in the direct direction and living a life that is meaningful, you're just falling back into a, a trap, might be a different belief system that is just as hindersome, etc. But you're not taking steps forward. And that's where the ongoing path is. That's where the healing comes in. That's where you can't go once to a gym, become healthy. That's not why you eat one <laughs> leaf of salad and that makes you a healthy person. No. You make little choices every day and if you make enough of them, you will find, wow, your life changes forever. Lynn's has changed forever. She's living proof. There she is in, in, in a beautiful way she is. And, and uh, we all can be like that, is it not? But what stops you? Yep, mostly ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Lynn, if people really like what, what they have heard there. Well, first of all, your book, show us your book. 
So that might be a good way of you to be uh, known. You are not your diagnosis. And that is so bloody well right, isn't it? You could also uh, change that to you are not your trauma. You are not your addiction. You are not your Mm -hmm. depression. But in this case, you are not your diagnosis because that's really, that was what what started you transforming, what started you developing into this beautiful human that you are now. Um, mm-hmm. And that's beautiful. Wow. So that's that's as an ebook out there as well through Kindle? Um, I I don't, yeah, I think it is on, a, uh, you can Very buy it good. on Amazon Kindle. Yeah. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So guys, absolutely. So look down there into the description, but also you, how can they find you? Do, uh, yeah. Where, where yeah. are you? The best way is through my website, yeah. which is heartfirehealingllc.com. And I'm also on Instagram as heartfirehealing. Beautiful. And guys, check down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast because I've got all her her social media handles down there. So simply copy and paste or click. And whilst you're down there, press the like button and uh, maybe leave a review if you so desire. We certainly love to hear back from you. And more importantly, press the subscribe button because I've got so many beautiful, wonderful guests like Lynn coming onto my show. Hey, you know, spread the word and maybe we can make this a little bit better maybe we can just plant that seed somewhere that someone says okay i'm ready to take action i'm ready to kick ass it's time to heal in the truest meaning of the word and who knows maybe we can be the little candle in the darkness for someone and in two years time that person is the candle for someone else and maybe we can create a better world who knows Beautiful. Yeah, I love it. I have some clients that have gone on to be healers and I always find that such a beautiful thing. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Well, and that's what this is all about. Let's make this world a better place. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on to my show. I truly, I truly appreciate it. Your candor, uh, your whole attitude is lovely. And the lessons that I've learned from you, they're very humbling. Uh, you held a mirror in front of my face and it was for that I'm grateful thank you very much thank you so much for having me (sighs) and you guys out there look after yourself and have a fantastic time bye